0: hello and welcome to bonnets at dawn the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th 19th and 20th centuries i'm your host hannah chapman and i'm your host lauren burke this week we are talking about something that is a little different for us but it speaks so much to our season on lost books, unpublished works and marginalised voices uh, that we really hope that you will enjoy it. We are joined by rare bookseller Patrick Olson for a chat about the rare book trade and how worth is determined and we'll also be talking a little about the works of Phyllis Wheatley and how despite being so important a writer, Her story, her true story, was nearly lost to time.
1: Now, in an alternate universe, one that's completely free of COVID, we actually would have been staying with Pat during the American literary home road trip that we were planning this fall. um, Pat actually lives really, really close to Orchard House. So that would have been a perfect place for us to crash uh, during the 5K. And we would have been up close and personal with some of the rare books that we are going to be chatting about today. Patrick Olson is the owner of Patrick Olson Rare Books in Lowell, Massachusetts. He's worked with rare books for 17 years now, which makes me feel really old, um, <laughs> both in trade and in libraries. While his business focuses on pre-1830 material Um his preferred bedtime reading is actually 19th and early 20th century fiction. He very much considers himself Team Alcott, and he also happens to be one of my oldest and best friends. And I'm really excited to have him on the show with us today. And can I just drop one more pat fact, which he did not include in this bio, um, is the fact that he officiated my wedding. Uh And when he did that, I bought him a title. So
0: he's Lord Patrick Olson of Glencoe, FYI. Like Lord Scott Disick from The Real Real Housewives of Kardashian. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it holds about the same weight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like, can you just give us some very basic information about the rare book world? So very interested in how value is assigned, especially
2: yeah so um so the rare book world and i guess to a as sort of an ecosystem you know it's made up of of book collectors librarians um book dealers and then there's scholars who work with the material um and they all kind of help the ecosystem run and they're all necessary and as as far as value goes it's i mean it's with the exception of you know some you know customs duties in international trade and the occasional export license required. I mean, it is an unregulated free market economy. So it's Mm -hmm. entirely supply and demand. So value is really based on the, you know, the whims, desires and priorities of, of the people and the institutions who have the money to spend. So a lot, you know, in the rare book world, Collectively, libraries—you know, universities, especially uh, private research libraries, some public universities, and, uh, and public libraries—collectively spend lots of money every year on rare books. Um, and together, you know, when 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 tastes and priorities, you know, shift and change, uh, they they do uh, and are entirely capable of elevating a certain genre, uh, field, any sort of fashion or, or trend that happens to be desirable at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but they can only, they can only take it so far. You know, their budgets are, you know, eventually eclipsed by the, the small number of uber wealthy private collectors. And that's when you see Shakespeare folios at auction going for several million dollars, Audubon's Birds of America. um, those are
1: the bangers those guys yeah
2: those are the you know the you know i I think the um the highest price paid for a printed book uh at least a western printed book was was recently broken at about 14 million for the bay song book uh printed in 1640 in cambridge massachusetts which was the first book printed in what is now you know you know was was then british north american is now the northern hemisphere um Granted, you know, Mexico had printing a full century before what is now the US did. The Spanish brought it over there long before we had it. Um, but yeah, so it, it's really kind of a, a snapshot of, of cultural trends and priorities uh, writ large. And so when you have people who are willing to spend millions of dollars on a book, or even for most people, a few hundred dollars is a lot of money for a book. Um, you know, people are buying things that they they care about, that they're familiar with often. And so what you see often is the, you know, the Shakespeare's, you know, the Jane Austen, um, you know, these are, are literary authors, many of whom were studied in school, uh, you know, with a grade school, university, by the collectors who have the money to spend. So they're, they're spending on what they know, on what they're familiar with, what they like. Um, but when you look at universities, you know they, they too are, are are trying to cater to, well, as, I guess, as opposed to the private collector, universities are trying to cater to a, a much larger audience. Right. And so, for a long time, it was it was it correlated pretty closely with what the private collectors were after. They were after, you know, Western high spots. So you know, think about the, the traditional Western canon in you know, Shakespeare, Milton. Um, I mean, that's, that's, those were the, the prize things to have in your collection, uh, even at, at kind of university level. Um, and that did, that did start to change. And, and so you, uh, and I think especially around the time of the, the civil rights era, um, you know, black, black American authors became much more important. Uh, universities, you know, found their, their enrollment. Um, was not nearly as white as it used to be. And that that trend continues. And so now universities having, you know, once been kind of of cloistered and these rare book collections reserved for credentialed scholars, um, or sometimes you needed letters of recommendation to get in to use the material. You know, now they're like, please come in, use our stuff. Um, So you have, you know, classes, not just graduate students, but undergrads coming in with, you know, in classes to, to interact with the material, use the material. Uh, it's being used more in exhibits, um, outreach events, you know, development events at, at different institutions. Uh, and so, as you, you know, for years now, they've been putting this rare material in front of a much, uh, much more diverse audience. And so they're trying to, you know, bring in collection material that that speaks to the, you know, an expanded audience. Mm-hmm. So suddenly having, you know, caverns full of of just you know, ancient books by a bunch of dead white guys, um, you know, they, they want more to kind of uh, engage a, you know, a much broader audience than they they've dealt with, you know, I guess, for most of their hundreds of years of existence. Um,
1: it's interesting that you've had that like experience to just at the university administrative level as well as like private dealing with private collections also yeah yeah thinking about your days getting started in the book business yeah (laughs) (laughs) which we could really get into (laughs)
2: yeah yeah
1: (laughs) I will say maybe if you just want to give people like a really quick snapshot I mean we will give them a bio but of like sort of your experience in the rare book world like you've kind of touched a few angles there.
2: Yeah, so um, so how I got started, like I, I was in high school when I kind of developed an interest in, in old books. Um, mm-hmm. And so this was, uh, I think it was a junior in high school. My English teacher mentioned Nathaniel Hawthorne's first novel, Fanshawe, which apparently he hated so much that he you know, he tried to destroy every copy he could find. Um, oh, interesting. And, okay. Uh, and I later learned, I think most burned up in a warehouse fire. Okay. Um, but it, you know, it remains the the rarest uh, Hawthorne novel. But uh, in any case, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be so cool to have one of those? Which will never happen. I'll never have one. Um, but that, that, <laughs> How much would that go for? Oh, I, I was I was talking to a bookseller a while back who said years ago he found one and uh, I, I think it sold for something in the uh, maybe the low five figures. Okay. Um, you know, it'd be. It's a bit pricey. Yeah, pricey. Yeah. Pricing, yeah. In any case, that kind of sparked the interest, and then in, in college, you know, I, I went to college thinking I'd be an English teacher, mm-hmm. high school English, but I realized uh, I was enrolled in the College of uh, Liberal Arts and Sciences and not the College of Education, and I was too lazy to change. Sure. Well, let's just let's just do straight-up English, um, and so I, I thought, you know, write, writing seemed like a precarious existence. Um mm-hmm. Somehow, book selling seemed stable. More stable, yeah. yeah, yeah. Somehow, um, so so I uh, I asked. Uh, I went. I knew there was a rare book dealer in uh, the South Loop of Chicago, so I went down there, asked for a job. He hired me on the spot. This was I, th- I think this is my sophomore year of college.
1: I think so. But,
2: yeah, is that right?
1: Yeah, sounds about right to me. Yeah, he, he
2: hired me on the spot, <laughs> and maybe that should have been a red flag. And he didn't he didn't look into me any. Uh, deeper. You,
1: you're you are very trustworthy, Pat. I, <laughs> I don't know. I'd probably hire you on the spot too.
2: Um, and and Lauren, you know some of the drama. I um eventually had to <laughs> had to leave because you know kind of I needed a paycheck. And the paychecks. Sure. I mean, um, so I did. But
1: good experience, like foot in the door for the yeah, rare book world, yeah. which I would assume is like probably difficult to wedge your way into yeah
2: it's, it's not an easy business um you know and you you've got to have uh, i mean to get started you need a books or or just straight up cash to get going mm-hmm. um so fortunately over the you know my years as a librarian even when i was in college i, I collected sporadically and so i i had a, a small number of books to get started with which is how i launched my business but um but, yeah, going back. So, yeah, after after the bookstore, I went uh, you know, I had my library degree, my master's in library science. So I worked at the University of Illinois for a couple of years, cataloging rare books down in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, moved out to catalog rare books at MIT for a few years. Mm-hmm. Then I was a special collections librarian at the University of Iowa for just over a year and a half. So that was largely a curatorial role. So I was I was tasked with developing the rare book collection. Then I went to Michigan State University where my wife got a job and they were able to come, with, come up with a curatorial job for me. And I was there for four years, my last year as head of special collections. So that was sort of my administrative experience, um, which was, was uh, also a huge learning experience. And then my wife got a job out here north of Boston. And I said, well, let's go into business selling rare books.
1: Over your career, what are some like really cool finds? Yeah. What have you gotten really excited about?
2: So this kind of you know, ties into how I, I, I find stuff, um, you know, which is in, in, in part just browsing auctions, you know, mm-hmm. what other booksellers have online, that sort of thing. Uh, and I shop, especially now. I mean, before the pandemic, it was 99% virtual. Okay. Um, scaling it up to 100% virtual wasn't, wasn't too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I do a lot of reading. So I read a lot of, of just book history and, and general early modern history. And so I, I should note, I, you know, when I, as far as my books are concerned, so I focus on books from what we call the, the hand press period. Mm-hmm. And so this is the period in, in, the West when books were printed and made entirely by hand. And so that runs from Gutenberg, through you know roughly around 1830. The cutoff date is is uh, kind of fuzzy, but I use 1830 as kind of the rough um, uh, bookend for my date range. And so I, I focus on those those hand pressed uh, European books and la- European and largely continental. So there are already a lot of people doing English language stuff, American stuff, and so I, uh, I generally work in languages other than european other than english um all right so to get to your original question uh no
1: that's all good to know yeah yeah. i
2: i read a lot of book history and just general kind of early modern european history um and so in in the course of my reading i'm constantly taking notes on on anything that might be useful in my work um Mm -hmm. so you know when i say when when i find you know details about um you know the importance or or influence or relevance of a particular book i get online see if there are any copies floating around out there um uh, mm-hmm. and you know every now and then i get lucky and there's you know maybe just one copy it's at a fair price uh, and i can you know i buy it and then i i research the hell out of it and then i i sell it um it in doing this I, i've i've scared up some really amazing things. Um, that part of me feels like I, I, I should not have found just floating around on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one was the, um, so the, the first published author that we know of, of African descent in Europe, uh, was a, a, a Portuguese-born playwright by the name of Afonso Alvarez, um, who was writing these, these plays in verse, you know, in the you know, 1530s, maybe the 1540s in Portugal, mm-hmm. And so I was reading this, this book chapter about it. I'm like, oh, this, this sounds really interesting. You know, there's, yeah. there's there's no way any of this is going to be available. The, the material is e- extremely rare. And uh, I think because it's so rare, that's one reason why, um, you know, despite the fact that Al- Alvarez was writing in verse, Juan Latino was often giving, given credit as kind of the first black uh, poet in Europe. Um, and he was you know, a few decades later than Afonso Alvarez. But in any case, so I'm like, all right, let's go online, see if I can find anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I did manage to find uh, um, a book that contained, uh, yeah, I think it was like, you know, three or four or five pages of, of work by him. Yeah, so like, like I said, you know, this, this guy's these plays are extremely rare. There's just a handful of copies that have survived. They all exist in, in like a single edition, um, or a single copy of a particular edition. And I found online for an absurdly low price, um, a book from 1783, uh, that contained several pages of, uh, of work by, by Alvarez tacked onto the back. Um, and so, you know, that's the kind of thing where you, you know, you, uh, you know, you're not out to profiteer, but you know, you're a, you're a small business, a young business. Sure. You're trying to grow it. And that's, that's the kind of thing where you can, um, Uh, sell for I think I finally sold that for maybe like 20 times my purchase price Um, oh geez oh wow so
1: I mean is it like the original buyer doesn't know what they have yeah or they're not doing the research or it's also like
2: timing it sounds like it's also marketing yeah so yeah and it's it's kind of all that and so in this case it, it wasn't obvious that this this small book contained work by Afonso Alvarez. It was, it was tucked into the back. Um, You know, it did, it did mention it on the title page, but it, you know, was sort of downplayed, but it, it, it it takes, you know, so the the kind of cataloging and describing idea was pretty research heavy. Um, And so, yeah, a a big part of the, of my job is, yeah, finding not necessarily things that other people have missed In, in this case, this is something I would, you know, if I had that book, I um, you know, highlighting that particular aspect of it would have made it much more saleable and much more, you know, relevant to um, to a, a much broader audience. But, uh, yeah, it's about catching things that other people miss, but also just um, seeing something in a different way. Uh, you know, some book, one bookseller might um, uh, see this as, just, you know, this is, you know, an unremarkable um piece of Portuguese writing, you know, who cares? Uh, but put in the context of you know, the contributions of, of people of African descent to European literature, I mean, it's, it's tremendously valuable and it's the kind of thing that you just, you, you can't find. Um, you know, there are no sale records for his work. Uh, and so it's, it's a matter of, yeah, you know, doing the kind of the legwork to figure out, well, how, how rare is this? You know, it's just the kind of thing that appears at auction every year Or is this the kind of Mm -hmm. thing that never appears at auction? Um, You know, are there eight copies of this available online right now, or is there just one copy available right now? Well, yeah, I was talking about Portugal. You know, the there was a big earthquake there maybe in seven, seven, seventeen, mid eighteenth century, destroyed a lot of archival records, Um, Mm -hmm. and so just the availability of research material for, um, you know, I guess the part of Europe that had the the largest population of, of people that of african descent just doesn't i mean it's not as robust as it, it could have been right um, yeah that sucks yeah that's well that sucks <laughs> but then you, you think and a lot of it depends so much on this is where you kind of get into to history of the book type stuff uh the format that something was published in so yeah Small, slight publications don't survive as well as, you know, hefty tones. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, take the the case of, of Juan Latino, for example. Well, it was a, a pretty substantial book he published uh, in the 1570, 1570s um, and also extremely rare. I don't want to downplay the rarity of, the, of, of his, his work. Um, but it was it was uh, the work of a scholar who was you know glamorizing uh, Granada's military conquest of Spain's Morisco population. That's the kind of thing that's going to be much uh, of much greater interest to the cultural gatekeepers of his time, and probably not considered as as worthy of of preserving over the years. Um, right. And you, you know you look at and this is the case with you know, across the board, you take the Gutenberg Bible, for example, you know, we think there are about 180 copies survived, or or, I'm sorry, 180 copies were printed. And of those more than a quarter of them survived substantially complete. Now you you compare that to something like your run of the mill 18th century Almanac, uh, which may have had a, a print run in the, you know, the low five figures in some cases, um, Sometimes no copies of those editions survive, just because they were so heavily used. Uh, you know, they were ephemeral in nature, meant for just a year, and not thought worthy of being kept, collected by a library. Um, you know, they weren't of, of serious scholarly value, so why bother preserving them? Um, and I think Phyllis Wheatley is another interesting example here. You know, she uh, is often, you know. I, I think we usually say that she's the first African-american to have published a book of poetry um, but we often overlook the fact that uh, a guy by the name of Jupiter Hammond published uh, who was also of African descent uh, published a broadside poem I think in 17 the 1760s not okay. not you know surely before Phyllis Wheatley um, but broadsides, I mean, survive in much, much smaller numbers than, you know, Phyllis Wheatley's book. They're just not meant to, mm-hmm. uh, to be preserved, not meant to survive. So, so yeah, it's funny how, um, you know, not just uh, the priorities of the collectors, but just the format of the item can can have a huge bearing on whether or not it survives.
1: Yeah, that is a, an excellent point. And that's something that we also like, have not gotten into on this show, honestly.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Is the actual format. And a lot of the writers that we cover, um, especially some of the rarer books that we're going to be talking about this season, they were books that were meant to be read. They were books that were sold maybe in hat shops, you know, for women. And so they are not, you know, they're like a romance novel. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they probably were passed along amongst friends and... Mm -hmm fell apart you know at some point
2: yeah yeah especially when you're, you're you're looking at the 19th century um when the the sort of the the heyday of the novel um, yeah what what's being saved you know what you know university libraries weren't buying novels you know those were not right yeah so it's you know what what were lending lot the you know the subscription lending libraries buying um you know what were what were the the readers themselves buying and yeah, those, those weren't meant to, to be saved. Um, mm-hmm. And es- especially for the ones, and I know you've been looking at some of these that were perhaps only appeared in serial form. Yeah. You know, those You know th- those slight kind of ephemeral um, monthly issues are not going to be, uh, they're not going to last the same way that a, a bound book might. Um, mm-hmm. And so if a serialized novel never found its way into to publish, you know, to, to book form, um, you know, I think it stands a, a slighter chance of of lasting through the ages,
1: mm-hmm. and that's sad too because so many of these African American authors, you know, in the nineteenth century, that's how they were publishing.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: and yeah,
2: yeah. And a lot of them. And I was looking at, you know, I know we were just looking at uh, the list you shared with me, um, and. You know, the, the one that's easiest to find uh, is Harriet Jacobs, you know, mm-hmm. Incidents in the, the Life of a Slave Girl. Um, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that that happens to be the one that was um, edited by Lydia Maria Child, who was already you know, a, a very well-established, popular white author at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and having, I think, that force behind your book I, I must have helped uh, a great deal. Um, but yeah, some of these others, I mean, yeah, they, uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't published by, you know, in Boston by Roberts Brothers or in New York by Harper's, they often seem to be smaller publishing houses, may um, mm-hmm. not have had the distribution networks that were quite as extensive and robust as some of the bigger publishing houses, um, and probably had a harder time just finding, finding buyers. Um, yeah. You know, and, and probably had smaller print runs for the same reason. You know, this is you know, nineteenth-century fiction is always interesting because it, you know, at least for from you know, and I, since I deal so much with libraries, a lot of the libraries that would want to have you know those books in early editions already have them, and so this you know, this is a a, a huge swath of the market that's that's still um, you know, prices are driven largely by private collectors, and there's you know, there's no shortage of people who who grew up reading the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen and who you know when they have some money they really want you know those early those first editions of the books that they love but yeah it'll be interesting you know uh, to see how you know what's taught in the authors that are taught in school in college um when those students you know grow up find themselves with disposable income you know, what what are they going to want you know what books will they want to spend it on them? yeah are they going to feel the same you know with Will Bronte and Austin have been as influential in their own lives as as some other authors that are being taught in school these days? Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, that, and that's the kind of thing that can really really shift, you know, the rare book market. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, I mean, are, are, are these, if these guys fall out of favor in the curriculum, people aren't gonna, you know, grow up into wealthy adults interested in buying acquisitions.
1: I mean, in general, we're talking about like how value is assigned to men versus women. Is it just as sexist as everything else in the world? Like,
2: I mean, yeah, it's, it's sexist. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to (laughs) sugarcoat it. Um, I mean, you think of the United States has produced plenty of great women writers but the American literature market is still dominated by um uh you know Herman Melville, uh Walt okay. Whitman, um, Edgar Allan Poe. And then you into know, the 20th century. I mean, the high prices are, are for F. Scott Fitzgerald and still Hemingway Faulkner. Um, that's not to say there aren't expensive um first editions by women authors, but it, yeah, it's still, I mean, they're still the clips by uh by men. And in this case, you know, the I think prices paid for these books is, is not a terrible gauge for how they're valued in society. Um, mm-hmm. And that women's literature for a, a long time is um, just not been valued as, as, as you know, nearly as much as it should have. Uh, I imagine that's going to, you know, I guess the question is, you know, when, when does that change? Right. You know, so it, um, if it comes down to the, the people who have the money, uh, you know, who has the money? I mean, you look at the, the wealthiest people in America and you're you know, looking at at white men, um, you know, who understandably will want to collect, you know, if they want to collect books, will collect books that are meaningful to them. People, you know, men who have the money to spend on that stuff now are probably going to be men who grew up reading Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner in school—that's right. what they identify with, and so that's what they're buying.
1: Going back, is there anything, uh, any other cool finds you want to tell us about? You did have that medicine one too. Yeah, the... we'll talk about that. That's well, really cool. So, you
2: know, it's not like it was, you know, something I found that was uh, mm-hmm. you know vastly undervalued. It's sort of a really interesting, uh, you know, kind of uh, window into how early modern women authors were treated. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I've got I I picked up this book by um, uh, a a Spanish woman named uh, Oliva Sabuco, who in the late 16th century wrote uh, a book on basically um, uh, how physical health affects mental health. So it's sort of a kind of a groundbreaking work of medical philosophy. Um, And she was. You know, by the early, early 17th century, she was she was recognized as kind of a, a, a wise woman, you know, uh, one of the um, most eminent people in her field. Um, but this work of hers was was pretty thoroughly panned by the medical establishment. Uh, you know, one, she was a woman. So that counted against her. Right. Um, and two, you know, what what is she talking about? Mental health can affect physical health. That's crazy talk. Mm-hmm. and so certainly today you know we know better and, and she deserved sure. real credit for for kind of um starting to suggest the connection between mental health and physical health because uh, certainly you know stress takes a, a a real toll on the body we know now um but uh this is this is crazy so her father in his will claimed credit for her book um which i know that's something you could do yeah, in your I, will. I, I didn't either. I didn't either. Oh, let me let me find what uh, <laughs> exactly what he said. So uh, Sabuko had um, uh, was given, you know, credit for authorship for, uh, you know, the first few hundred years. And I think this her father's will was discovered, I think, in, in 1903 or 1904, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so that's when people said, oh, well, this, you know, her father said he wrote this so he must have written it. So that's when author, authorial attribution was, was um, switched to her father. And mm-hmm. it was only uh, recently, even in the, in the last 15 years or so, where uh, um, you know, these uh, women who are the, sort of the modern editors of Sibuko's text investigated this claim. They're like, well, let's, let's see how this holds up. And, uh, and there, was, there was kind of a, some harsh wording in this will. So her father said, uh, I order my daughter, Luisa de Oliva, not to interfere in the said privilege if she wants to avoid my curse, because I have established evidence of how I am the author and not she. So, you, you know, really kind of...
1: There's a curse. Yeah, there's a curse.
2: He's throwing some serious shade. He's like, she didn't write this, I did. And, and by this point, you know, she was rather famous as a, um, uh, you know, a, a learned woman of, of, uh, of medicine. But in any case, these modern editors have recently looked at this this will and presented pretty compelling evidence that the witnesses who signed the will um, did so before her father's text to that effect was added. Okay. So the the witnesses did not actually see his claim to authorship when they signed it. That was added after the fact. Um,
1: that's how you sneak in that, a crazy stuff in your you, will, guys. That's how
2: you sneak it in. Yeah. <laughs> Here, sign this blank sheet of paper. I promise <laughs> I won't add anything on tour. Um, Not at all. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so, and so, yeah, this kind of goes back to other. You know, this is just one uh, one recent discovery. I mean, uh, undoubtedly, mm-hmm. they're going to be. You know, when you start digging into the archival record, more stuff like this is going to to crop up. Uh, where we find authorial attributions shift. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. we you know, discover an unknown identity of a particular author. Um, so I think this is where some of the, the most exciting discoveries are, are going to be made, at least in, in the realm of early modern publishing, um, mm-hmm. where the, the archival record is pretty scant. You know, often all we have are the, you know, the published text that came down to us, not the negotiating, the correspondence that, that preceded it.
1: Right. Yeah. You know. um, and you had a book of hers, or did you? Did you sell? No, a book
2: I, I of course, I still have that one. Yeah. So I have. This is the um, the fourth edition of her book, sort of the last early modern edition, which uh, was published in 1728. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, it's an, a fascinating sort of tale of posthumous plagiarism by like her father. And yeah. I, I just, I never. Conceived that that would have been a, a concern. So this we're on topic of of women writers. Um, it was like so one of the, the great uh, great women scientists of early modern Europe is a woman named Laura Bossi, an Italian physicist, who was active in the 18th century. Um, you know, she was the the first, the, only the second woman to get a PhD from any European university. Uh, the first to get one in the sciences and the, the first woman to be offered a, you know, a permanent teaching gig at a, at a university in Europe. Um, so huge deal, huge deal, mm-hmm. uh, well known. And uh, you know, I, I never thought I would have any of her work. You know, it's, she, she finally, she published um, I think just five things during her lifetime. She's very productive, she presented a lot of, a lot of lectures. Um, and it's, uh, despite not having published a whole lot, um, seen as kind of a role model for engagement with her profession, so she was tremendously active. Mm-hmm. And a lot of scholars suggest that the best way to gauge her her contributions to the field and the role she played is to look at the voluminous correspondence with other scientists of her day. Okay. Um, so, in any case she published very little, uh, you know, her dissertation and then four articles that it were scattered in, um, you know, a scientific journal published in Bologna, Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, one day I was like, oh, all right, well, let's see if I can find any, any copies of these, these, of her articles in these journals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, thinking surely if, if there's, you know, work by Laura Bassi, uh it, you know, her name would appear in the author field. I mean, it would be clearly called attention to, uh, given her stature. But no, I, I found for a, 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 you know, very small amount of money, um, you know, a, a journal that contained two of her articles. And so they, like, fully this single book uh, that contained 40% of the work she published over the course of her life. Um, that was, and this this comes down to, it's funny, you know, I, I'm a cataloger by, you know, by training and, mm-hmm. You know, her uh, her name, I have no doubt that multiple people have have like a you know alarm set up so that if, if something catalogued under Laura Bossi's name appears on, you know, a books, biblios, some of these websites, they'll get an email and they will know about it right away. But mm-hmm. Bossi's name did not appear in the author field for this particular journal, and so it kind of flew under the radar. Uh Okay. And,
1: Interesting. And that's
2: the kind of thing where I, uh, you know, I, I bought for, you know, again, I, I, I um, you know, bought low, sold high. But yeah, the, this stuff is very rare. And I, I eventually sold it to a collector um, who has made her, her life's work collecting um, women authors uh, and women's contributions to, to humanity. And she, she had never seen a copy for sale. Um, mm-hmm. again, it was just kind of languishing on the internet. And, and so these aren't, you know, it's it, crazy. I, I, you know, I don't want to call it, these aren't discoveries. I mean, people, scholars have said, you know, these, this work is in this book. I mean, it's, it's well mm-hmm. known. Um, but I think just uh, sometimes I'm just surprised. I'm very surprised by what I find just hanging out on the web. And a People
1: don't know what they have.
2: Yeah, it sounds like. it, it's possible in some cases it was, you know, this bookseller had it for years. Um, they could have had it long before there was a, a huge interest in collecting women scientists. Sure. Um, and, you know, only now did, did somebody, you know, stumble upon it. Um,
1: so now I have told you that I lo- I'm looking for weird stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like I like weird stuff
1: i i told you that and you did send me something earlier today that was weird oh, yeah, and interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. and i loved it if i had the money i'd buy it pat
2: uh-huh yeah
1: tell us tell us what that was
2: all right well so lauren was like hey you know if you find any weird george elliott out there let me know so today i was digging around and you know there, there are plenty of george elliott out there um sure but yeah the one really interesting thing i stumbled upon. Uh, was a uh, was it 1888? Was that when it was made? It was a a forgery. I think I've got it up here. So, late 19th century, there was this this book lover guy named uh, Thomas J. Wise, um, who who was to his credit an astute bibliographer. He knew books. He was he was very good um, at what he did, and his his bibliographic work is is still considered. Um, exemplary and authoritative except for the fact that it's littered with a bunch of his own forgeries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: He's an inside man. He's an inside man.
2: Um, and so he would, what he would do is, and this is late 19th century and he was at that time, very collectible uh, were, you know, the Brownings, uh, you know, the, Nineteenth-century romantic fiction and poetry.
1: Oh yeah, all of our faves. Which, which is really
2: kind of interesting because he, he was not very far removed at all from those authors. Mm-hmm. So he, this is you know from from his perspective, this is pretty modern stuff. Um, and so he would capitalize on the demand for that material by fabricating um, the privately printed you know first editions of these authors. Mm-hmm. And so, so Laura, what I shared with you was a, a copy of Brother and Sister Sonnets by George Eliot, uh, which has on its title page, London for Private Circulation Only, 1869. So this was Wise's specialty. So taking an established collectible author, fabricating uh in addition intended for private circulation, people can't use yeah. using air quotes here, but I'm using my air quotes. <laughs> um, and he would offer them to, to collectors It's like, Oh man, you, you're going to love this. This is the ultra rare, privately circulated first edition of, you know, George Eliot sonnets only went to her closest family and friends. Only a few copies were printed. Yeah. You know, please offer me, you know, yeah. 10 times what you would pay for, you know, the other first edition mm-hmm. people would buy them and he would, he would sell as many as, as he could, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's how his, his empire started to crumble Was that, um, you know, some collectors started to talk like, Oh, he offered this to me too. And I thought I had the only one. And what's going on. Um, and, and so for this George Elliott, for example, um, you know, in the end, analysis of, of, of the paper and of the type, um, you know, it can't be uh, later than maybe about 1888. Um, and I, I should give credit. So this is available for sale right now by, by John Dice, uh, which is a, a great um, UK dealer. Uh, they've been in business for a long time. Um, so credit to them and their cataloging and for making it available.
1: Uh, and it is for sale for two over $2,000. Yeah, it's... A- so these forgeries are worth now they're worth a yeah, lot of money, is, which I is think a, is hilarious. A weird
2: thing, and this you know people have always been interested in a kind of bibliographic curiosities, and that's what they. Which I mean, that's my th-
1: that's yeah, my idea. Yeah, yeah, and I,
2: I who doesn't love a good forgery story? Um, sure. And yeah, so the, these these Thomas Wise forgeries have become very collectible. Um, you know, they're not usually not worth as much as the true first edition, um, but they are. Uh, I mean, they're curious, um, you know, they're, uh, besides their curiosity, they're they're kind of instructive in terms of the, uh, you know, the book market at the time and what people valued. Um, yeah, so that,
1: I think that's why I like it. I think the story is really interesting um, in that it's also like, it just brings you closer to the author or I like that the the original buyers felt closer to the author. Yeah, yeah.
2: And you're right. This gets back to the idea of like, this is not, this is not a fun, you know, a monetary thing for collectors. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a romantic pursuit. Um, mm-hmm. and like, you know, if I have the money, I don't care what it's going to cost. I need that book. Yeah. Um, and people, yeah. people paid for it, but yeah, there's a, 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 a bibliographer, John Carter um, in the early 20th century wrote, kind of the definitive expose of the Thomas wise forgeries and uh, yeah, everything, you know, by that time, there had been a lot of suspicions and, and, sure, um, but yeah, the, uh, the whole, whole house came kind of crashing down. And then, you know, you feel for the collectors who shelled out, you know, big money for these, yeah uh, you know, these privately printed first editions that nobody else had and suddenly they're, they're worthless. Um,
1: yeah. But now there were But Now related. there was
2: something. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, it took a while. They're probably did, all dead it, now. It did
2: take a while. It did take a while. Yeah. Um,
1: I think, does University of Chicago have a collection of these? I oh, think, I'm sure that, yeah. Like, that they put on display. Yeah, I'm most, sure, yeah. Most, yeah I, most think big I saw
2: university libraries will have a handful of these wise forgeries. Because, you yeah. know, even, you know, kind of the, the, the heyday for institutional book collecting was sort of the years right after the Second World War. Um, And so by then, you know, the the wise forgeries had been exposed and they kind of become these curiosities. And so they certainly found their way into into libraries. But
1: I love a curiosity. I loved the um, the wallpaper book that you had at Michigan.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a yeah. Shadows from the Walls of Death. Um, A title. Yeah. For those who don't know, this is a a, um, so this is at Michigan State University who uh, an, an MSU chemistry professor, this was, I think, 1870s, maybe, this is late 19th century, uh, decided to investigate reports of, of poisonous wallpapers. So these were wallpapers that employed a, uh, a green pigment made from arsenic, which is poisonous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he, he published, this is its own kind of expose, you know, kind of a, really a, a wallpaper sample book it was made entirely of poisonous wallpaper. Um, and it's it's funny, There's and there's been a growing interest in, uh, you know, the green dyes made from arsenic um, mm-hmm. as conservators do further investigation and find that, you know, it's not just wallpaper, it's the, you know, the, the green used in some, in, in book bindings sometimes. Um, you know, green used anywhere, uh, it, it may have this arsenic compound in it. Um, and in, ge- in general, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to, you, you know, occasional light handling is not going to kill you. Um, but, but MSU did have each wallpaper sample encapsulated in mylar so that people could handle it without worry about, you know, breathing in, you know, sure. in dust, anything like that. But yeah, it was, it was cool. Yeah, no, and this is what it, and I should say when it, when it comes to early modern books, this is what most excites me. Um, is the kind of the unusual stuff and so on i i'm drawn to kind of the in the early modern people the the marginalized and this this is not just people of color and women um but the, the poor the deviant um you know, any any group that did not make its way into the you know mainstream publishing um mm-hmm. evidence of the the daily lives of everyday people um is what really interests me it's just a lot of fascinating artifacts of print culture um, that were ubiquitous at the time, but survive in very low numbers.
0: And we are back. Can I just say that Pat's story about how he started out as a rare books guy just sounded to me like something out of The Holiday. There's a bit where the character (laughs) Arthur Abbott is talking about like old school Hollywood. and Yeah, I just got like the real like, Nancy Meyer vibes from that story. Uh, it was a different time. It was. He <laughs> just walked into that shop in Printers Row and was like, and I'm here. The next day I was on the payroll.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a line from the holiday, everyone. Okay, <laughs> so uh, I also really liked the bit about how different people value different things and just how that's been shaping the industry all of this time. So mm-hmm. I do think that in a few years... Uh, well maybe a few generations there is going to be some really rare copy of Twilight just setting the world on fire oh gosh yeah you know just real rare good condition signed maybe like her original notebook Twilight manuscript yeah oh god (laughs) the original floppy the original USB stick that it's saved on yeah with the tracked changes yes there you go (laughs) Could we do a project which is Jane Austen's track changes and we just like dump <laughs> Pride and Prejudice into and like one of us can be like Cassandra giving her reader's notes. Oh my okay. god, I think that would be really good actually. Some Something else that I really liked about the conversation uh, towards the end was just like the other people whose work hasn't been prioritized mm-hmm. um, like outside of Uh, people of colour and uh, outside of like women and that's poor people and I think the word Pat used was like deviant people I think that's like that's so true and like especially when you consider how much virtue and morality impacts the careers of like for example the women writers and Mm -hmm. I'm sure to the uh, writers of colour as well where you're not a man and so like you have to be so good you have to you're Standards have to be higher, and that's not just of your work, but of your personal life. You have to be yeah. like flawless, and I think that's interesting because that's going to come up later in this episode. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but like, yeah, I want to like deviant, also, like people like who are keeping journals in prison. Is that what he means? Like, it just yeah, it's stuff just like something that like yeah. I had never thought of, and I was just like, mm-hmm. it's so right, yeah.
1: I think priorities is the right word too, right? Because I think the archive can give us like a false impression of the past, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about all the people that have been prioritized, right? So who they were, mostly white men with particular reputations, right? Mm -hmm. And that gives you like a false impression of history. um, Instead of going, wait a minute, we just haven't like saved these other people or they're, they're just not present in the archives because of money or time or the materials, you know, could have been lost to time. Um, One thing that has been really big for me on Bonnets at Dawn is just like reevaluating the work of authors that I thought I knew. Like I thought yeah. I had one idea of Louisa May Alcott mm-hmm. before we started the show. And then now that's completely changed. Um, Another author who I've been recently reevaluating is Phyllis Wheatley. So, um, in one of our conversations, one of our like off mic, just friends conversations, friends. Pat actually, yeah, just chatting, just hanging yeah. out. Uh, <laughs> Pat actually brought this article from the New Yorker to my attention, and it's called "How Phyllis Wheatley Was Recovered Through History" by Elizabeth Winkler, and. I definitely recommend you giving it a read because um, it's awesome and I will for sure drop a link in the Facebook group for anyone who is interested. Um, For those of you who are not familiar with Phyllis Wheatley, here is a super brief introduction. So Phyllis Wheatley was an 18th century poet, the first published African-American poet to be exact. She was born in West Africa and was taken to Boston when she was about seven or eight years old, and it was upon her arrival in America that her birth name was completely lost to historical record, and she was renamed Phyllis for the boat that transported her and Wheatley for the family that bought her. Now, unusually for the time, the Wheatleys taught her how to read and write, and she even learned Greek and Latin by the age of 12. In her early 20s, she traveled to London, and it was here that her first book, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, was published in 1773. So after publication of her book, she was emancipated by the Wheatleys, which, you know, may or may not have something to do with the fact that she became incredibly famous, both in England and in America. And then Eventually, after returning to America to attend to her dying former mistress, she married John Peters, and the pair had three children, though none survived infancy. At just 31, Wheatley died, and her second book of poetry, though written, was never published.
0: So Lauren, I'm curious whether or not uh, Phyllis Wheatley is an author that you had heard of. Like, did you study her in college? Because i had never heard of her surprise surprise and then i was reading the introduction to contending forces the pauline hopkins book and mm-hmm. the there's a story of phyllis wheatley um appearing in front of a panel of uh, like important townsmen mm-hmm. to prove that she had written her poems like oh you're an enslaved person you can't like you can't have written it and then she had to go mm-hmm. and there's no record of what there's no, like, minutes from the meeting, but mm-hmm. I guess they were like, yeah, like, oh, she actually a is capable of reading and They wrote, like, a thing and saying, writing. like, oh, we the undersigned can confirm that this, like, slave child, oh, it's the mm-hmm. whole situ- you know. Yeah. So that was the first time. And it didn't, I don't think it meant went much further outside of that.
1: I had wondered if you had heard of her before. Um, yeah, of course I have. So... The first time I encountered Phyllis Wheatley was in elementary school. and How old is that? mm, So that's like
0: five to ten. That's young.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: for sure. Because this poetry is not like the cat in the hat. Mm, Yes,
1: but we're (laughs) going to... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And I would say then maybe... She was mentioned in a class or two after that, but she was definitely not, like, a serious part of my curriculum. I would be interested to hear from other Americans, like, how they were introduced to Phyllis Wheatley. And also Um, British people, if if she's someone that you were to. Yeah,
0: because definitely not not on Um, mine. I think I've
1: encountered her most as a passing reference, just like the one that you came across in Contending Forces. I Mm -hmm. think that's really the context um, I'm used to seeing her in. That said... Wheatley does have a lot of name recognition in the States and she is regarded as like an American hero. Um, She's someone that's part of the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. There are schools and like university halls named for her. And there are lots and lots and lots of children's books about
0: Wheatley. Oh, really? Yes. Well, the art school is beginning to make a lot more sense (laughs) to me.
1: Yeah, so that's definitely, that that would definitely have been my introduction to Phyllis Wheatley, would have been from um, a children's book that was probably uh, inspirational in tone and also religious in tone. Okay. So, yeah. Um, And I actually went back and I reviewed a couple of these books to prep for the show. Mm -hmm. So I was like, it's been a minute. Let me see. (laughs) Let me see what's going on in these. And I will say, as someone who writes children's biographies and studies women writers, wow, I had some feelings. Oh, really? I had a lot of feelings. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, okay, overall, Phyllis is often portrayed as, like, frail, mm-hmm. illiterate. Mm-hmm. That word comes up quite a bit. Illiterate. Or uneducated. Which... um. We'll get to in a second. (laughs) So overall, Phyllis is often portrayed as this frail, illiterate or uneducated child who became a prodigy under the benevolent tutelage and support of her owners. I think this is the message that I'm getting from most Mm -hmm. of these books. And I do want to circle back to the word illiterate and also like uneducated for a moment there because I think it's important for us to remember that Phyllis was kidnapped and brought to a foreign country at a young age so obviously she couldn't read or write in English um so yeah so that word you know kind of irks me and I think if you are writing about Phyllis in this century just think about the ways that you're writing yeah, about absolutely. her enslavement yeah. obviously um, anyway, she is ultimately presented as a very inspirational figure and is often in conversation with someone like George Washington, who was a great fan of her work. So, yeah, there's always been something about Wheatley's story that has bothered me. And like, let me be clear on this. This isn't about Wheatley herself or her work. Um, this is about the way she has been mythologized. Mm -hmm. in American culture Uh, one because there's like this white savior aspect yeah from the Wheatleys yeah Wheatleys Um, and let me and also like let me point out that they also had other slaves yeah Um, when they purchased Phyllis she was sickly and I think the the man who sold her didn't think that she would last long essentially she was a deal and so the, her mistress thought she would be like a good companion for a while. So she was actually separated from the other slaves in the household who were doing work. And that was one of the reasons why she was
0: oh, really? sort of taught
1: to read and write. Because she, she was supposed to be a companion, essentially. Almost like a play
0: thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like absolutely. it's something to do, like teach the little child how to yeah. read and write. It's like a, a thing to... Exactly, and then then that the Wheatleys had children, didn't they? Because it's yes, she goes to England with the Wheatley son when her book. That's who she's with. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay,
1: they did. Um, and I think Phyllis was meant to do like light Mm -hmm. sort of housework in addition to being a companion. That kind of also leads me into the next point that really bothers me when you kind of mentioned that she was sort of a plaything. Because there is this sort of element of like, oh, gee whiz, like Black people can read and write. And like, look at what we've proved. Like, look mm-hmm. at what we've done here. like this accomplishment. And that's always really upset me. Um, I feel like the stories are, are very rarely about Phyllis and like her agency, her desire to write. It's about like how she impacted white people. It's something I actually also found true when I reviewed a bunch of children's books when I was writing my book on Rosa Parks, Um, just like how much she has been sanitized and how much her agency has been removed from her own story. What I thought was really interesting was when Pat sent me that article, I was kind of like, oh, Phyllis Wheatley, this is something to sort of, okay, this is going to be a lot to dive Mm -hmm. into and then that article, like, just articulated so well everything that I had been feeling about Phyllis. And I was like, wait a minute, let me st- step back and, like, sort of reevaluate what's going on here.
0: Is It's interesting that you said a lot of that because the article, like, other than that mention in the introduction, the article is, like, the most I've ever read about Phyllis Wheatley and so Mm -hmm. for me it was like such a wild ride there were so many like twists and turns in this story that I wasn't I mean just in this article alone that I wasn't expecting so one thing that really struck me about the article was the discussion around the point of uh, Wheatley's work and whether Mm. or not she is a race traitor Mm -hmm. now it is not up to me to decide whether or not Phyllis Wheatley is a race traitor uh, by any means The article does mention that by the age of 15, she had written the poem on being brought from Africa to America and that in it she expresses gratitude for her Christian redemption. Uh, (laughs) One of the lines is, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a saviour too." And there's an argument that this poem serves as a theological justification for slavery, even when it's held up against poems that reminded Christian readers that black people were like still of God and in her Mm -hmm. own words may be refined and join the angelic train. And the article's got loads of um, like great examples and discussion around that. But the thing Mm -hmm. that it was making me think about was just that... um, this discussion isn't really talking about the author, like authorship or author's intent. It's talking about, like, I'm making up some words now, I think, like editorship or curatorship or yes. even custodianship. I'm going to I'm going to throw another ship in there. Ooh, it's also talking about censorship. Censorship. Oh, yeah. That's probably the word I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Censorship. Um, Yeah, because the thing is, and you were saying this as well, like. Phyllis Wheatley is a child when she is mm-hmm. writing this. She is an enslaved child and her writing at the time is being uh, like overseen and looked at uh, through the eyes first by her white, like master. Is mm-hmm. that like, I'm so unsure about terminology, like by the people that like Bunny is like own her and then yeah. And then they're kind of showing out to people of like, what is she meant to show them? She's a child. She's in a dangerous situation. I don't, and like, she's been conditioned and brainwashed. Of course, of course, this is the stuff that she's going to tell, like, she's repeating what she's been told and she will have told them that she is so lucky and that she should be so thankful and that they have educated her and she was illiterate before and she's come from this pagan land because they think slavery is okay. So that's absolutely their angle. Um, right so no like I'm not surprised that her poems or at least the and like in capitals published or surviving poems express gratitude to the Wheatleys because it's in the interest of the people publishing her work right and yeah she she's a child and then her later poems when she's in her 20s so towards the time that her book is coming out the like the words Tyranny starts coming into it and words like Mm -hmm. misery start coming into it within the context of the slave trade when she's an adult and when she has some agency. And those
1: poems were not published. And I think that speaks to the whole like other part of this story. And that's Wheatley's legacy. So in 1834, a biography was written and this was 50 years after Wheatley died. By Margareta Matilda Odell, who was a white woman that claimed to be descendant a descendant of the Wheatleys, and um, so she claimed she had all this inside knowledge. She claimed she was a family member. She wrote this book, and and it's the pro of, the Wheatleys. It's very pro Wheatley. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very sanitized account of Phyllis Wheatley's life. So the article sort of gets into um, actually looking into the biography, and like fact checking it. Was Margareta actually related to the Wheatleys? That's something that appears to be false. It appears to be that she used that connection probably to sell the book. I'm guessing to lay yeah, it. Some I was sort of
0: expecting that plot twist. And yeah, that was one of the bits in the article where I was like, "What?" and this extra mystery like who is this woman
1: yeah probably just to you know give herself some sort of authority over the story i'm guessing also with regards to phyllis's marriage mm-hmm. um she paints her marriage as an unhappy one and
0: there is no evidence actually of that yeah cuz i think one of the things that pulled on was the fact that her husband is in a debtors prison and mm-hmm like some of his but like people can be in love and lose their money or not be able to pay their rent like yeah
1: yeah it pays it paints him as a villain for being in a debtor's prison but um we don't really know the ins and outs of that uh it has nothing it you know it it doesn't mean that he was running up gambling debts and like drinking what? his money it means
0: that you know business was was tough Sometimes people went to debtors' prison overnight. Yeah.
1: Like, it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't have a huge yeah. bearing on his character. So, I mean, it's a, an incredibly biased book. Um, you have to wonder what Margaretta was getting out of it, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's more, I feel like it's more about her and the Wheatleys than it is actually about Phyllis. Yeah. And that's interesting because we've been, Completely, you know, looking to this book for how many years as the the source, mm-hmm. as the Bible, the truth about Phyllis Wheatley's life. And
0: that's just not the case, really. So the article also introduced us to a book by Honore Fanon Jeffers called The Age of Phyllis, which is a reclamation and retelling of Wheatley's life through a series of poems. And the poems, um, the poems build on Wheatley's work, and the kind of provable historical fact, mm-hmm. like so, what's what stuff is like definitely like real, right? Um, but it removes the Odell lens from the story, right? It removes mm-hmm. the, I want to say like the white, uh, slavery apologist lens from Wheatley's life and work which I think is really interesting to to be doing that now and though Jeffers uh, describes the book as a fiction I would classify it equally or at least no less biographical than the 1834 biography which has just been taken as gospel until now
1: One of the poems is a fictional first draft of a letter to George Washington, and it plays with what Wheatley's inner thoughts may have been by including parts of the letter and sections that would have been edited before sending. Just want to underline that. Edited before sending, guys. Um, Hannah, do you think we should read some of it to give people just like a little taste of these poems?
0: Sure. So I'll take the letter parts and then you can take the inner monologue sir i have taken the freedom
1: which if my master hadn't given me would have been my own anyway
0: to address your excellency
1: who i heard behaves like either a gentleman or a tyrant depending on his moods or his money in the enclosed poem filled with desperate attempts to prick your male vanity and entreat your
0: acceptance you should be glad i wrote although i am not insensible
1: Of your cruel aversion to Negro men who fight for the indefensible.
0: Your Excellency's most obedient servant. This humility is tedious. (laughs) I hope that translated. When I read that in the article, I was like, I think this is the best poem I've seen this year. It's really cool. It's really good, isn't it? I said that like I read like a ton of poetry this year. (laughs) I didn't, but I really liked it. I I really liked it too. I would love to have is on the show. Is that real? Is that, oh yeah. Is that reasonable for us? I would love to too. I just think that the, that blended approach to biography and poetry and reclaiming and retelling Wheatley's story is just everything that I think at least you and I are interested in mm-hmm. and um, something that we want to bring more to on the show. Like it's such, yeah, it's such interesting work.
1: So I was lucky enough to attend a talk by Jeffers with the American Antiquarian Society that was uh, done online and it was recorded and it is available via YouTube. So I will put that on our Facebook group so we can continue this discussion. And Hannah, why don't you tell the people where they can find the Facebook group, our other social medias, and just, you know, what the internet is all about.
0: The internet is a propaganda machine. Oh you no. You heard it here first, folks. I've turned into like some edgy like pirate radio host. <laughs> like really leant forward <laughs> in my chair when I said that. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join our discussions on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And we hope to see you there.